0: Okay, so since Tom is gone, Christiana, you'll do the intro. Uh, whenever you're ready, we're, I'm rolling.
1: And we're not nervous, so off you go, Christiana. I'm just being not nervous.
0: Hello, and welcome to Outrage and Optimism.
1: More Tom. give it, pl- Channel more Tom, Christiana.
2: Channel more Tom. Okay. Is that you doing an English accent, by the way?
3: Uh, no. <laughs> okay, ready to well,
1: And in the voice of Tom, remember?
3: I was just getting there. I, I will I will exaggerate the English accent. Okay, here we go. One, two, three.
2: Hello, and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm
3: Cristiana Figueres.
1: I'm Paul Dickinson.
3: And Tom is away this week, as you probably already heard. So we are delighted to be joined by a surprise co-host. Mm. I know, I'm Sachi Lloyd. Yay, welcome, Swan. Welcome. Thank you. This week we talk about art and culture as political activism. And we speak to Rob Danaya from the band Massive Attack and to Mark Dunn, long-term collaborator of Massive Attack. Thanks for being here. first time we have Sashi on here. Sashi, it's so good to have you Um, for many different reasons. One, of course, is that we have a very, very good common friend, all of us, uh, Tessa Tennant, Mm -hmm. who's sadly no longer with us, but uh, who brought so many of us together in so many different journeys. But yes, for the listeners,
1: and was Sashi your super is... super fans actually, and used to just you know um, yes. somebody who Tessa holds was you a in. Tessa was a
2: super fan. So, yeah. absolutely. I used to enjoy drinking whiskey with Tessa. She, um. she could keep pace with me, you know. One of the few <laughs> who could. Whoa. I hope you're still drinking whiskey in her honour. Yes. N- no, I have ditched whiskey. I just drink rum now. That's I'm a fickle. Pickle friend what is the
1: actual <laughs> difference between whiskey and rum or is that like show? i'm completely crass asking that question
2: uh, well uh, it, uh rum comes from sugarcane it's fermented from sugarcane i think rum is like distilled bottled sunshine joyous whereas whiskey is you know it it comes from the celtic whisker bit, which means the breath of life but you know it kind of comes from oats and wheat and potatoes you know it's it's a bit of a Dure drink. Uh, no, no, say.
1: no. I understand. Uh, sunshine. Not very common in Scotland. Uh, very no. good. Rum. Every time. <laughs> let's,
3: let's say one is tropical and the other is very temperate. How's that?
2: <laughs> okay, <you> diplomat. Yeah. <laughs> that is, oddly enough, that is exactly what Christian is. She is a diplomat, know, and you can tell. You can the tell. The
3: most undiplomatic diplomat of the world, <laughs> trying to smooth me out there. Don't smooth me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, folks, so Sashi is not only a very good and longtime friend, but she is a teacher of deprived children. She's a British <laughs> author of uh, six books now, including all of them actually fall into the genre that you probably have never heard of, but it is a very cool genre called cli Phi, which means the fiction that explores the consequences of climate change. Now, mm-hmm. Sashi is most well known for, I would say, Sashi maybe two of your books, The Carbon Diaries, that I would love For you to give us a little overview of. It's been translated into 15 languages. Many awards have been won uh, on on that book. And then the latest book that you just put out, just such a fun book, 72 to Save a Zoo. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just totally irreverent and hilarious. Um, And Sashi herself calls it a comedy thriller. Mm -hmm. So Sashi, would you like to tell us a little bit about your writing?
2: Well, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm like one of those people who peaked too early with the Carbon Diaries because they were very, very successful. Those, those, <laughs> those books. They, they've nearly been made into a film and TV series about 20 times over. There's a script being written again. Uh, they're being developed by the BFI and hopefully this time it will go. I'm trying not to have any hope about it because it's the hope that kills you, mm. you know to line no- from
1: Clockwork. He says, is it, is it, the despair, yes. the despair I can stand, what kills
2: me is the hope. Yes, yes. So I'm trying to, like, have, like, no feels at all inside, but i just got a tiny bit no of... No attachment, thicker. Sashi, that's it. Yeah. No attachment, all open right, but, to outcome. Yeah, but I'm sick of it, you know, and I'm sick of seeing horrible books with like talentless writers being millionaires and all their works being made into things. So I have to have no feelings whatsoever. But yes, it's hopefully it's nearly there. the carbon diaries really was me. I was brought up on the island of Anglesey in North Wales. And I think what a lot of people in the kind of vanguard of the climate change movement have in common is very nature connected childhood and so i used to spend my whole time fishing down on the rocks and i never used to catch anything but i loved it and i had the rock pools and the cormorants diving into the sea and it was i used to watch the sun setting and it was so beautiful and then you know wind forward 20 years and i see a documentary about the gulf stream shutting down and it was so visceral for me this Mm. feeling of like no it's not a it's not an academic idea it was like Mm. boom those are my rock balls my cormorants over my dead body it was really visceral for me (laughs) so when I'm really serious about something I have to make jokes you know so I wanted to write something really funny about the most dreadful thing I could think that was happening and so I was like oh how do I do this you know and I did loads of research and blah 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 and I thought I was a a great admirer of the writer Sue Townsend. She wrote the Adrian Mole books. Mm. And the great thing in those books is just this awful teenager. (laughs) And and so I wanted to write a book not about climate change, because when you care about something, you don't write the book about that. You write a book about something else with that as the background. You know, Uh, that's Mm. the point. And so I wanted to write a book about a family who... You, so what happens is it's, the, it's like 2015, it's the first year of carbon rationing. The UK's the first to go in and everyone's got points, you know, if you want to run your car, if you want to heat your house, if you want to, you know, buy a mango as opposed to a, you know, dodgy potato, you know, from Kent, then, you know, it's all got air miles, it's all got carbon points. So it's this family uh, falling apart in the first year of carbon rationing because suddenly, they are very bereft of all their devices and all their separateness, and they have to see if they can survive being much, much more together. And that's the central joke of the book, really. It's like, what happens when you have to get much more real with each other? Uh, mm. So it's just a joy to write. Uh, you Laura, who wants to be in a band, who wants to fancy boys. You have her great uh, evil sister who's uh, had her gap year cancelled, imagine, uh, who's now staying oh, at home.
1: Sounds a bit COVID.
2: <laughs> yeah, the mum who's just falling apart. The dad who's been sacked from his travel and tourism, uh, you know, teaching job because there is no future in, in in travel anymore. So and then the dad goes quite wild and um, gets a pig and goes all self-sufficient. Um so it's this story about uh, the the family and the whole neighborhood um just Kind of losing the plot with rationing, and I think the main thing to say about it really is that a lot of the research came from a time of rationing and the war uh, and so there was a really common thread in the thing about the war, which was once people decide to do something together and once they they decide we're going to endure this hardship, we're going to fight together there's a huge sense of happiness and a sense of belonging and togetherness that that releases. Instead of denying it and fighting it and saying, well, they're not doing it, da-da-da. Once you join a common endeavour, so many people say of the war, well, it was awful, but it was the best time of my life. And that's what I think, and I think that quite a lot about um, climate change messaging. I, I understand we don't want to fight. We don't want to scare the bejesus out of everybody, but at the same time, you have to say, "Come on, people! This is this is a big endeavor now, and jump in." Mm. Well, that that's exactly, isn't it, the
3: role of um, using arts, whether it's literature or painting or music or sculpture. That is very much the role of the arts in communicating that invitation, that message, making us all feel just a little bit uncomfortable about the fact that we're not doing enough or we're not doing anything at all mm-hmm. and inviting us to, um, as you say, to join a common, mm-hmm. uh, a common endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, Marina, as we were preparing for this conversation with you, um, no, Sharon, Sharon Johnson reminded <laughs> us that Greenpeace was launched as a result of a big concert way back then. And in the 60s, you know, well, I'm I'm certainly old enough, and most of our listeners are not old enough to remember, but maybe they have read about it. In the 60s, there was a lot of music about outrage, about stopping the war, about st- stopping injustices. And a lot of the music and the literature and the art that was put out there was very, um, yeah, very dramatic, very demanding Um, aggressive even if you want and and then somehow we went into sort of lovey-dovey stage in the 80s and are are we now coming back to the demanding really accentuated use of art and culture Sashi to wake us all up is
1: this a time of consequences
2: is yes thank you Paul oh that's a question yeah I think um you you know I I just want to say something first which is I go to some meetings with you, Christiana, you know, and, and with some very serious people working at high level. And I'm always like amazed that you allow me in the room. I feel ridiculous to be in this room. You're really serious. Wait, wait, wait. are you
3: are do you really mean to use the adjective serious? Or do
2: would you rather use the adjective boring? No, serious. I mean, <laughs> you're like a... Yeah, but you, you go and slog it out every day and your little eyes light up with spreadsheets and that's the boring bit. Yeah, actually, I'll give you that. But, um, <laughs> but you know, but you're there and you're like, yes. And then we convened this and then we went to the next stage and then it'll be phase three. And it's like, oh, my God, these women are really <laughs> doing this. And I'm just, you know, jotting a few words. There. It's absolutely astonishing to me. Uh, but then on the other hand, I know that when I've done some kind of political activism, that words keep you warm on the picket line or they keep you fired up to go out again or images, you know, so it's the two things work together. I think that um, in answer to your question about art and is it becoming more strident and pointed – I think there is an artist space, like if you look at the work of Bob Dylan, for example, he refused to be co-opted into that kind of Vietnam movement. It was like, no, I'm not doing this. I am an artist first and foremost. And I think his work is more powerful for that because Because it's not allowed allowed Mm -hmm. itself to be stratified into sloganeering or just, you know, a very shallow thing. The Clash, Rock for Racism in, in Britain was a classic example. They, you know, they just played their great tunes and they were known to be anti-racists, you know, and very much part of that, but it didn't necessarily feed so much into their work. So I think there's a massive space for that. And I think what you often find is quite, um, I wouldn't say agitprop, professor but that kind of work, often the art suffers you
1: yourself, you you did the. I mean, with literature, you were able to actually make your work directly uh, about climate change in a way that I think maybe musicians or painters or you know wouldn't wouldn't be able to do. I think maybe you had that unique gift. And yet, this 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 um this genre that you've practically invented uh, Sachi, you know it, 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 do you, do you think that other people will follow it, or do you think that you were lucky that you were able to find that voice?
2: I certainly didn't invent this. There's loads of people doing all sorts of stuff. They're really interesting. So that does basically- make
1: me look stupid in front of the listeners, but we're going to accept it. Clay will probably leave it in, and I just have to—I have to work with that. But thank you, Sashi.
2: But thank you. Uh,
3: you but but well, hold on, Sashi. Hold on. Let Let's examine that because it is—is mm-hmm. is it not a relatively new genre? Yes. It to is, combine yeah. climate, which is absolutely science based. And fiction is sort of a contradiction in terms—a delightful, creative contradiction in terms, isn't it? But where did it come from? I'm sure maybe you don't. I think you're just being too humble and you don't want to take credit. But if you're not the mm, author, no, that could
1: rescue my reputation as well, which is important.
3: <laughs> yeah, we're rescuing you, Paul. Here, if you're not the author of that genre, for sure one of the first to maybe delve into it with your books, perhaps not thinking that you were creating a genre, but opening up a space of creativity and of messaging and communication that did not exist before.
2: (sighs) I'm going to throw you back in the water, Paul. Um, (laughs) I've got one defense, by the way. (laughs) John, bring it on, bring it on. I can take it. I just you know you know I was listening to the other day Big Yellow Taxi Joni Mitchell I think that's been as bigger influence on me as any single work of art and you know you know the verse I really love best of all in Big Yellow Taxi you know the first two verses are about DDT and farmers and tree museums and stuff and then the last verse is just about her husband leaving her and that's that that last verse Makes this song, you're like, oh, she's not trying to lecture me. She's she's just talking about something. And and in the Carbon Diaries, uh, I, what, really what I did was I did absolutely tons and tons of research. And then I buried it in a giant hole. And none of the research was allowed to show at all in the book. If anybody, but it was all in your passive. Yeah, box. but no, nobody was allowed to say I just made the reality out of it. But nobody yeah. was allowed to talk about it. There were no vegan girls with braces going, "Hey, let's save the world." Because you know, <laughs> I, I didn't want—I didn't want those conversations there. I wanted everyone to be really right royally pissed off they were having all their liberties taken away from them, and um, that it was difficult to do. And I wanted them to go for a journey. I think. Um, I think the one thing I'm going to path pull you aboard the boat, Paul, is Thank that you. I don't Thank think. You. I don't think many people write comedy about it. Mm. Uh, I think that the dystopia oh, very thing, I mean, um, Orwell says dystopia is a lens through which you view society. The best opening line of any book is it was uh, a cold, what was it? It was a cold day in April and the clock struck 13. Perfect. It's great already. You see, why is the clock striking 13? What's going on? What's the government done? Something's happened. And and so you just twist one little thing in reality for a great dystopia and then you explore it. But it's not very often that that people who write dystopia have a taste for the comedy. Uh, And that, that I might take a tiny bit of credit for. (laughs)
1: orwell himself great writer not so huge on the comedy although that's not to denigrate in any way and there are funny bits in animal farm so actually do tell us now about your new book 72 to save a zoom uh
2: this is the only climate change thriller i'm confident to say that stars a stick insect uh Mm. so it's this um it's this uh, wait wait it's it's a comedy thriller
1: yeah no it's a serious (laughs) play about a stick insect
2: right Listen, mate, there's going to be a new genre that's very serious about stick insects, but this is the comedy strand, okay. and uh, it's, it's based on the, the Seven Samurai, uh, or the Magnificent Seven, and so it's a ragtag group of misfits, the, the worst animals in the zoo, the... St- you know, the stick in set the smallest as a pygmy mouse, the snarliest as a wolverine, uh, there's a banana slug, all these kind of characters. And basically the only reason why they're free is because they should have been fed to the others or they would they were malingering and sick. Uh-huh. And basically, it's climate change in a nutshell, and they have to put out the fire in the boiler room. They have to save Penguin World. They have to uh, <laughs> sort out some flooding. They have to manage the yellow chicken, a a Senor trump
0: and oh. they have to
2: um there's a grand finale and they have to decide which way they want to go forward do they want to escape do they want to protect or do they want to unite and it's so it's a big finale and um, drum roll, uh, drum yeah, roll. Uh, and it's just full of as many jokes and as many drawings as i could put in it and it's it's the most fun i've ever had with a book ever so that's it, 72 to Save a Zoo, a climate change thriller coming your way, starring Stacy Blumenthal, stick insect, poet, believer, artiste.
3: <laughs> and it's illustrated by you, Sashi. Yeah, I feel like yeah. I've met her
2: now. Yeah. I, you know. well,
3: Sashi, so now we do have to ask on behalf
2: of our listeners, where can they yeah. find this fun book? Okay, so you can you can find it on Amazon. That's where you can find it. Right. Can download, it's just available of Kindle at the moment, but uh, in, and in these very serious times, a laugh is always a good thing for the heart. Yeah, when things get serious, the jokes get flying. There you go. Now, Sachi, so let me
1: challenge you because you—I was listening to mm. you. I was listening to you recently <laughs> talking about mm. binding the climate movement. Uh, you know the the, the the strength of coming together with one clear vision. And I think that where I'm going with this is. Do you think the climate movement will, is there a climate movement? Should there be a climate movement? C- could art help bind it? I mean, your work has done that, but do you see others coming forward or is that a kind of pipe dream?
2: Of course it's going to happen. The climate movement uh, is is gaining momentum daily, weekly, monthly. It's, uh, you know, all the work all of you guys are doing is, is it, it's becoming unstoppable, incredible. before, COVID-19 you know the tragedy of this you know it was the number one thing on the agenda it wasn't number 6 on the news anymore those marches those young people yeah those, wow that, you know future for friday no it was massive XR uh, who uh, you know I, I don't agree with everything that XR do but I but I think that they that they fill a certain space and they do it really well and also each movement isn't supposed to Fill every single niche. They did that thing. I was on those bridges in Westminster. Mm. The most um, exciting, moving thing for me was the old people getting arrested, moving forward to get arrested for the young people on the bridges, and that—that to me was intergenerational fairness right there in front of me. It was so beautiful to see. Mm. So, you know, I, I certainly think with climate change that I don't think that the creative movement behind climate change. Uh, has really got going yet. Mm, it, yeah. It, in the same way that, um, you know, let's say to do with, um, like Black Lives Matter or Me Too to do with feminism, I think you're seeing a lot of artists, particularly media, uh, creative singers, uh, spoken word people really, really on it now. And that's really in the mainstream. They're producing. Great work, really right. cutting edge, interesting, difficult, tricky, you know, ju- you know, interesting work that's really uh, challenging people. And I think maybe the climate movement has got a little way to go yet. It's still a little bit panpipey, you know, it's still a bit <laughs> folky. It's quite white, the climate movement. Yeah, you know, no, it, has no, the, it I, I yeah. heard that, yeah. Uh, and so it's, um, which is, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Wales, that they, they had uh It was just the middle class people who revived Welsh. And, you know, they weren't cool. They were were like awful. They changed their names, these awful pretend Welsh names. But they kept going for 20 years. and They kept that flame going for long enough for the movement, you know, that Welsh was revived. And I think there is a great niche I'd like to shout out for all of those stiff-legged, folk-loving, white climate change people (laughs) who've kind of Got a lot, you know, kept this going when nobody else is interested because soon enough it will catch fire. It will yeah. catch fire and it's happening already. But you know, sometimes you need a bulwark of like uncool people to kind of like go. We care about this and we don't care if nobody else cares. But it's long, long overdue, it's diversity moment. Yeah, and just you one know.
1: thing, I mean, I, I was speaking to a, a friend, actually, uh, well, I went to a, 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 an event today, but uh, it just a young man finished his degree and he did it in XR, actually, and, and the lack of um, sort of uh, racial diversity in XR. But, of mm. course, you know, if you know we know what black lives matter movement means yeah. it's not it's not so cool to get arrested frankly if you're not yeah, white exactly. and uh, yeah. i mean we we did interview Israel hersey uh who said to us uh, last year i think that uh, you know white people have to go and demonstrate because when black people go and de- demonstrate they get shot and that yeah. was uh, you know someone yeah. of color in the us talking pretty clearly about it somebody yeah. black in the us yeah. talking seriously about that
3: well i'm i'm really taken by um sashi's observation that um Climate change in the cultural and art space hasn't quite moved into prime time yet, um, but we're beginning to see sparks of it. Certainly, Sashi's work in the written uh, written art is definitely a part of that. And I would say, um, Massive Attack has been working yep. on climate change since 1991, and we are just incredibly privileged to uh, have had an interview with them that we would now like to share with all of you, and uh, Paul and Sashi and I will be back after the interview. But here's just a little bit of a, of an introduction of Massive Attack for those that are too young, although I really have a big question mark. Even if you're young, you definitely have heard Massive Attack's um, production. So Massive Attack is a Bristol-based group. It was formed in 1988, last century, folks. Um, Still very current band. They're integrated by Rob Denlyer, artistic name 3D, and Grant Marshall, artistic name Daddy G. They um, actually rose to fame throughout the 90s uh, as huge pioneers, just like Sashi was a pioneer in the written uh, genre of science and climate coming together. They were pioneers of a musical style called Trip Hop but it actually encompasses many different styles and um, of many influences of, uh, of, of the band members. They have won many, many different awards, and for our purposes, they have been politically active throughout their careers supporting many causes that we will speak to them about. But most recently, they've been supporting the XR, the Extinction Rebellion, and climate in general. And just recently, they released a three-track EP entitled Utopia that features Algiers, Saul Williams, young fathers, along with um, three of us who did- when, text- when you
1: say three of us, do you mean you, Christiana? Do you mean you? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean me plus uh, the income theorist, basic income theorist Guy Standing, and uh, then the economist Gabriel Sugman. So a, a pretty interesting combination of topics that they chose for their new release. But we'll talk about that in your interview. Are we ready for the interview? Let's play it. Robert and um, Mark, how wonderful to have you both here. It's so exciting that um, both from the band's perspective, represented by Rob, as well as from Mark's perspective, you've both been collaborating for such a long time on, uh, well, what we call activism, but I would love to know what you call it, which is You're using Massive Attacks, incredible platform to raise awareness and to educate your audiences about so many different challenges and issues of our times, starting way, 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 way back. This is not new for you at all. So I would love both of you to talk about that. How, what, you know, why, why did you decide to use the band's platform, music, um, and now even beyond music, uh, to educate your audiences. And in fact, even to reach new audiences with a purpose. What, what even sparked that idea?
4: Uh, I, I guess, to be honest, it's, it came naturally. It was a discourse, which was part of the youth, my youth, really, in, in terms of, I was very much into punk music and a lot of the bands of that era spoke in the same way. There was a lot of, uh, there's a lot of issues being raised you know, through the punk movement and particularly in Britain at the time, you know, during the sort of the Thatcher government, there was, it was a, it was a kind of a, you know, it was a time of a lot of unemployment and unhappiness, obviously. Um, and the music was something that kind of helped us express some of our frustrations. Mm. Um, so by the time we got into a studio situation, that I guess was part of our DNA in a way to sort of feel the same way. And even though we weren't overtly political in our output initially, and even though the name of the band might suggest something a little bit more aggressive, it was always within our kind of uh, culture to to want to address issues that we felt were important. Um, I, th- I think also thinking about you know coming from punk into early hip hop, it wasn't, and and the graffiti art movement, all those mediums, all all those different uh, particular types of communication, all spoke of the same things. They, they had a commonality, you know, in in terms of of looking for improvement and looking for change, mm. looking for evolution, really, looking for things to get better.
3: Well, speaking of commonalities, it's an interesting set of issues that you've chosen over time. Um, you have been very vocal about your support for the CND, for Stop the War, Occupy War Child, um, climate change in many different iterations, um, and uh, and now most recently XR. What what is common to all of those, or how do you choose from all of the different issues that we can get involved in? How do you choose, and and Mark, how do you? Choose when to get involved with massive attack.
5: Um, well, as as Rob sort of alluded to to earlier, it, there's never um, we don't really ever have a, a scheme of work or, or very much of a plan really. Um, th- these things tend to. I, I guess. I guess we sounds like we, this podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it sounds like making an album to be honest Well keep up the mistakes I mean the mistakes are going pretty well so far gang so don't don't, don't fix it
5: <laughs> um, I, I guess we sort of cont- have a continuous dialogue about stuff you know I'll see something or, or Rob will see something and, and we'll share it and we'll talk about it but then uh, there's always a kind of a point of crystallisation whereby you know the conversations join up a bit quicker a, a sort of some sort of totemic event or something will happen then, then I guess you know we would then move from from that position into well and maybe do we want to think about making some mm. kind of intervention and if we did, what what would that look like?
4: Absolutely. I mean some I mean, you know, thinking back to sort of ninety one and I guess, you know, the, the track Him and the Big Wheel, which I co-wrote with Nana Cherry, it was the first time I've really taken the idea of writing lyrics to what might be considered a serious song. And and then even then the idea of climate change was slightly abstract we were probably looking at through the, the sort of like the idea of the hole in the ozone layer and things that seem quite sort of uh you know distant in the memory now you know but the, the kind of background music of that has always been there and and all the other issues that we've felt keenly that have sort of kept the anxiety levels in us our, in ourselves uh continually you know tuned were are always mm. there you know they're all interconnected obviously and I think it's one thing like making records and writing lyrics about it but it's always I think in a, as a band as a person in a band or as an artist or whatever you always feel the discomfort of knowing that okay is, is that it is that what you're doing you know it's great to read about yourself and read that you've done something worthy but what is it you know I, I, I tend to look up to the people that actually take the direct action and do things much more meaningfully and I know those people might look at the music and see it as an inspiration or look at similar acts like that but I, I think it, it it's it's Mark said, when what can we do next? We see something happening and we feel it and we think, what is it that we can do? And in a band, yeah, you can talk you can get on stage, you can sing about it. And as you know, the music industry is a carbon heavy industry and we can't stop talking about climate change and singing about it and pleading for change, but we find it very difficult to actually change our own behaviour. Um, and I think that's a continual frustration in, in this in this kind of uh, this kind of strange uh, place of artistry and activism.
3: Interesting. Well, well, we'll talk about the um, carbon footprint of uh, of music and of touring in a, in a minute, if you'd like. Um, but I find it so interesting that you look up to those that are basically on, on the front lines, right? Um, and, and whereas I am absolutely certain that most people in the climate um, policy or the climate, you know, activism side would look over to arts and music and and the kind of um incredibly versatile tools that you have at hand and you know actually look longingly over to the kind of tools that you have and say oh we really wish that more artists would take up this cause because you you reach such much, much bigger audiences. You don't, you know, with your reach, you don't stay within the small tent of climate junkies. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, those of us who have been working on climate for way too long decades, we work within very small boundaries of, uh, yeah, climate junkies and, and experts. And... You just take it way beyond those boundaries. So if anything, we look over to you and go, oh, how fantastic (laughs) that they can do that.
4: (laughs) Well, that's funny because... We we kind of see the same boundaries in our own sort of like uh, sort of sector, if you will, because oh, we, we, we look at it and go, oh, is this all we can do? You know, what are we you know is this is this it? Will anyone ever take us seriously? You know, we're making music about climate change or oppression or or you know a statement about about war, but we kind of have this sense that you're not really having any direct effect on anything and it's slightly futile so we're always asking what can we do will anyone ever take us seriously you know it's great Mm. that a reviewer might have noticed uh, a lyric or a point or the fact that at a gig we've worked with a particular group of identities to try and uh, promote a new idea or or, or sort of draw attention to an issue but we always feel that it's the, the people like yourself that are actually affecting change system systemically getting right into the heart of it are the people we look up to and we and you're right you know we there is a, an enormous platform which mostly goes untapped, and there's also another s- slight difficulty because no, we, oft, like I said, feel diff- uncomfortable about our place in it and about the fact we don't really feel maybe that we are able to do anything sin- more sincere than you know create a sort of like artistic statement. But at the same time, it's a kind strange balance because if you talk to your your fans, the people at the gigs, or listen, or read the comments on social media, particularly. We're continually bombarded with just shut up and make some music, shut up and make some music. And oh. for years, I found that frustrating. And I thought, well, you know, we, you know, I'm a citizen. We all need to talk about this. And there's, you always fall back to that really great sort of placard. There's no music. There's no music on a dead planet. You know, you can draw from these brilliant placards right. you see <laughs> in, at, at the demonstrations. But there's always that narrative in the background. Which just, you guys, just shut up and do what you're you're here to do, which is entertain us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a bit of a battle and I, and I do get it sometimes. I do get that people came to us because they found something maybe it provoked something emotional. You know, we're obviously quite well known for doing quite melancholy stuff. And I, I think personally, this EP we've done with you, Cristiano, as a lead vocalist on it, is one of the most positive things we've done in years. You know, <laughs> even, even though it's still <laughs> some serious issues, it's great lyrics, great delivery. And I think, you know, it's we often sort of, people would, I think if they were going to use cliches to describe us, would say we're quite miserable at times and, you know, quite melancholy. But... And people come to us for that, I guess, cathartic release of that stuff. But, yes. So it's mm. difficult sometimes to keep pushing ideas. And in more recent years of the gigs, we've worked a lot with Adam Curtis, the filmmaker, you know, and some of the content is is pretty dense, you know. And I, I'm very aware that people are coming away from the gigs going, wow, you know, some people are going, that's amazing. I, I, it was transformative. And other people are just like, I just want some music. Mm-hmm. And you, it's impossible to ever get it right for yeah. everybody. but. It's, it, and, but you're right. It's a, it's a platform that, if you didn't try to do, if you didn't try to utilize in a in a way that made it any sort of, it could affect change, it would just seem, seem like a colossal waste of time.
5: Hmm yeah just if you don't mind to add to that i think that for me personally the um the the kind of political art which is always the most interesting and the most engaging is is the kind that's that's sort of not not hectoring it's not not sermonizing uh that it's sort of you know expansive and it's enjoyable but it's also for me for example if you know um the massive the last massive attack show that i saw which was over in in new york at radio city hall and it's like It's you know, extraordinary beguiling audiovisual experience. But none of it, none of it to me personally felt, felt hectoring or sermonising. In fact, the opposite, it's sort of a series of sort of exquisite questions and propositions, which kind of, feed on each other in a way and and allow you in a sense you know as the receiver to take your own control of it and and mold what you what you like or or don't mold anything at all it's it's a very it feels to me like a very open proposition
4: and that's and you know that's that's it it's like um it's also the the sense that you know there's a discomfort in it in in actually performing it making it and also you know actually being in a room with it and you know that you're creating something which isn't necessarily entertainment for everybody but it's that that friction really that makes it worth doing you know it's that it's it's, it's kind of it gives you the ability to sort of try to communicate and actually send signals and messages out there um without like you said sermonizing but you you have to create yeah sort of environment Ma-
3: making us feel just a little bit uncomfortable enough to make us think rather than just entertain right did you just Nudge us over that little bit You have to, you know Nudging us into making (laughs) us just a little bit "Mm," Squirm in our seats As we listen or as we watch That's the best sort of gig Uh, And then, then, uh, okay Then you engage brain You engage brain you go like, whoa, whoa, whoa What is going on here?
4: (laughs) Totally That's exactly it
1: Well, I, I... I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like come out as a bit of a fan here and, and say I see it a little bit differently. Um, you know, I, I actually adore melancholic music. You know, I'm really basically a very kind of happy person, but I adore melancholic music. It has a kind of righteous beauty to it. And um,
3: you know, since I, know, I have known Paul, which is a long time, <laughs> he has always told me that and proved himself because. Every single piece of music that he chooses to share is always on the melancholy side, and it's always been a question mark for me. So now, Paul, now you're going to explain to us. Well, I will explain
1: to you. Actually, Christiana, there's nothing wrong. You know, we all live different ways. But uh, my own experience of preparing for this podcast was uh, listening to some lovely Massive Attack, even listening to one of uh, one of the uh, people who've been on the show, Aurora, doing a cover of, of, of a song. And yeah, I've got tears running down my cheeks and. I think there's a sensibility in some of the music you've produced, a sort of empathetic feeling. I think there's an intensity in the music uh, that makes me not at all surprised that you campaign. Actually, I think there's a restless heart in there, um, and people are little, but music is big, and that heart is is has been so absent from uh, from contemporary. Uh, dialogue, uh, you know, just debate, and, and what I really love about it is, is the funniest thing I think I've ever heard is is Christiana saying, "Oh, nobody really takes us seriously," and then you know the the musician saying, "Nobody really takes us seriously," and you got <laughs> together and you made a piece of music together, and I'm taking you together very seriously. It's a wonderful. <laughs> that's good to <laughs> know. That's good to know. And, and
4: with tears rolling
3: down your cheeks, that's good. With <laughs> tears, <laughs> like, no, that, why not? That's that. good. That's, that's
4: Winning,
1: that's yeah. He, yeah
4: he's, chop- <laughs> he, he's chopping
5: <laughs> onions, isn't <laughs> <name's
3: laughs> <right>. he? Maybe,
1: maybe. <laughs> No, I'm not. I'm having my heart ripped out, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm glad about it and I'm sad about it, and that's possible at the same time.
4: No, well, that, you know, I, I totally, I totally, um, you know, I emphasize with that because exactly that's, that's to me, you know, trying to make a piece of music which has that effect on yourself initially. When you're making it, you know, if you're making mm. something that you feel that way about and that other people you hope will sort of share that same, same feeling. And of course, because over the years, we've, we've worked with so many different um, collaborators and artists, you know, from. Obviously, Shara Nelson back in the day, Sinead O'Connor, Elizabeth Fraser, the Young Fathers recently. And everyone's got their own voice and their own personalities. And they also bring their own personal history with activism and Mm. their own culture with them, you know, where they've been, what's been important to them historically and politically over the years. So it's an evolution for us. We're always changing. We never, you know, we don't have the the kind of the I guess the convenience of just having our, our sort of place and knowing our point of views and our opinions they have been challenged by the people we work with all the time which keeps keeps the ground really fertile and keeps you keeps you honest and keeps you pushing for more because you're learning all the time
3: well I tell you um <laughs> joining you on your latest EP utopia has Definitely been an evolution for me. Would you think the jury an evolution? It's definitely been an evolution for me, um, and quite a delightful one, I have to say. So thank you, thank you again. I know that I have thanked you in private, but thank you again in public for um, no, for the pleasure. invitation to to join you. But but let's talk about that because I actually don't know the story. Why why this is your first release in four years? You chose three topics, climate change, closure of tax havens, and universal income as the three topics that you really wanted to um, not just say something about, but actually make very strong political statements with music that backs it up um, and very strong visuals for all three. And so I would love to know how, you know, where where did the idea germinate? Was it in Rob's head? Was it in Mark's head? Was it, you know, you were both out drinking a beer one night and you both came up with it together? Well, you know, how did it come about, even just the idea? And then I would love for you to walk us through how do you produce that? Because that is not something that happens overnight. The detail that goes into the visuals, the symbolism, the rhythm, the music is just unbelievable. So I would love you to a tell us about the genesis of, of the idea, but also how you know, just the intricacies of this, the the collaboration with the other bands, the animations. I mean, it's just incredible.
4: Well, yeah, well, you know that's a that's a great analysis of it, and you know, thank you, thanks, for, thanks for very much for kind of feeling that it has that impact, you know, and and, you, and noticing all that detail because you're definitely right. There's so much um, detail that obviously that you, we often all take for granted when something's presented, you know, as finished. But um, it kind of came about. I mean, me and me and Mark, you know, were speaking like a couple of times a week during the start of the lockdown period. Mm-hmm. And obviously, because we were speaking a lot about our work with Tind- the Tyndall um, Climate Change Research Group up until that point, because we had a tour planned, and we'll talk about that later. But obviously, everything—you know—it was just that was it. Everything stopped overnight, as you know, and we had to rethink. And I, just, I, just, I totally accepted everything that was happening. We thought, wow, this is a moment, you know, not only for the music industry to maybe reevaluate itself and the, and the live music industry to reevaluate the way it, way it sort of had the carbon it produces, but the main thing was the anxiety, the underlying anxiety for what was going to happen next. Um, Not only, not only through the climate change, um, the climate emergency, the kind of anxiety that, but through the the economic shock that we're about to experience and how to, how we perpetually seem to never resolve these issues. How is there a way of looking at freeing up money, um, Mm -hmm. which is locked away in tax havens that could pay for something like basic income? Are these things real? Are these things we, you know, as Mark would say, um, they just sort of live in the fringes of arguments, as if they were slightly radical, but they suddenly mm-hmm. seem totally central. And you know, I'll let him expand on that.
5: Mm. No, I just uh, you, you've covered most of it actually. But just to say, I mean, we we were having conversations. I think we we managed to get. Into a position quite quickly, Rob, where we, we were sort of sinking our our, our kind of hour exercise every day. <laughs> we were simultaneously sinking it and wasting it by just sort of chatting about everything, and you know that kind of feeling of on, on one hand being quite frightened and and insecure and worried about what was going to happen, and at the same time realizing that all of the things that we've been we had been talking about and others have been talking about for at least ten years, uh, especially in relation to, to to climate emergency and climate change. Well, this moment had arrived where this sort of international hiatus have been imposed on everyone. Everyone had to stop and think and yep. listen. And then simultaneously, you know, the skies are clear and the roads are empty and I can breathe again. And and that sort of <laughs> I think we I think we were sort of immediately meditating on two things simultaneously, which actually where sort of is where the Thomas More, the sort of seminal text comes in, because it's the duality of feeling hope and oh my God, is this the moment? Is this the is this the kind of, you know, miraculous hiatus that's going to allow us to communicate and change and everyone's going to see the arrow their way tinged with we generally forget to do the right thing at the right time as a planet so how do we how, how do we fuse this moment into something where we can or can we it's always it, i think i'm right if i'm right in saying this Rob, we, we never sort of feel well i, I personally never sort of feel Oh yeah, this is what we'll do. It's always an evolution. It's always maybe this or may, you know, which is why you know I, I love working with, with with Rob and Massive Attack is because you know they're sort of to me they're their heart they're sort of, they're collectivists you know they they're, they're collectivists and so it's just sort of soaked in opportunity.
4: Absolutely, no, you're totally right. And you know, I mean, you know, the Thomas More um, uh, kind of framing it with Thomas More was something Mark came up with, which really intrigued me because we were talking about these very modern sort of situate this 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 new situation this this freezing of time and the uncertainty and the anxiety and and then the framing in this something much older and something that was equally as interconnected um, and we're like wow you know this this is something isn't it? and then as as an idea as as you pointed out collaging is is something that we've always done and so but it is a question it's like can we do this would this work is it something mm-hmm. we could get away with is it going to have an impact will it be effective Is it going to be successful as a piece of music, art, as a piece of communication? How will it look? And you kind of just, you speculate on it until you start to convince yourself. And then then you think, yeah, let's go for it. Let's try it. And that's really, I find that's the most exciting moment of any artistic endeavour and any kind of idea of getting involved in something to try and, to make either a sort of a very small intervention or just to speak up you know it's that moment you know it's the thing to do so we these things have been in our heads and percolating and materializing all the time and, and, and re-evolving but what was really important here was was recognizing that that we would just want to be the messengers at this point you know we didn't want to deliver we we could be the delivery mechanism in which people with much deeper mm-hmm. thoughts on this could actually send the messages out and transmit
1: that's what jane Fonda said to us she said that the the, the famous and great artists are the repeaters, but I, I do think you're letting yourself off a little bit lightly. I think that you have, there's, there's some channeling of an intensity of the human spirit, empathy, and then and then need, and, and, and prioritizing that, you know, amongst all these issues. Uh, I, I do salute it.
4: In terms of the depth of it, I do, I do really defer to Christiana and, and, and Guy and Gabrielle and Mark, in fact, you know, for a lot of the concept that went into the words that were used and spoken. Um, in fact, it was so. It was one of the reasons why I wanted to put the animated titles in there because I felt it had to be. Because working with Maria Klingerman, who's the AI coder who builds what you call these generative adversarial networks, which you feed data into. In this sense, we wanted to, I want him to do skulls and maps and faces and try and sort of like you know, kind of echo the Thomas More text. Um, but it was it had to be hypnotic, and the words had to be drawn over that into the visual so you were, you were constantly drawn, magnetised to it, to what was being said and never distracted. And that was yeah. probably the trickiest part of it to try and, with all those, you've got the music, with lyrics, you've got the words of you guys speaking, you've got the visuals and, it, you know, it could, in one sense you could make a mess of that and it could be completely distracting.
1: But I think we just about got away with it.
3: Well, I think you more than got <laughs> away with it. I think it's just so effective. <laughs>
1: Okay, so Rob, Mark, um, a, a kind of final question, unless Christiana ends up asking you whether you're Outrage or optimistic. But uh, my question is this: just looking ahead, um, you know, what do you see? What are you most excited about? Where do you want to go next with this incredibly fruitful collaboration you've got? What's catching your eye?
4: Well, um, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, we we have started sort of rethinking about our work with Tyndall and 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 like taking this moment of pause and reflection to think well how do you restart our industry
1: alone mm-hmm. you know i mean sorry yeah. with that with the tyndall center which is a, just a bunch of brilliant scientists in norwich yep. exactly um and it is it is is oh man it's so complicated
4: it really is you know if you start to sort of like look at every single layer of it you know from audience participation and travel and consumer behavior and and then band travel and then the the energy requirements and so on and so on and the waste that's produced and you start to sort of Try to lay that all out in front of yourself. How do you res- how do you make something like that work? It's really complex, and and it, and that's why you know it, you know we went to Tyndall because they they're experts at this stuff, and they will through being able to sort of like help us map out our 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 kind of uh, behaviour really, and be able to guide us and help us modify and make corrections. Hopefully, we'll be able to find some way of correcting the way the industry works. And one thing that you know, Mark drawn on very quickly from this when we started researching this is that a lot of this stems, comes from um, licensing. You know, you can't really force change in, in, I mean this, you know, we're talking about what we call the festival industrial complex. It's a massive, (laughs) massive industry. And, you know, to try and change that is such a stubborn thing with so many, so many barriers are there because obviously there's lots of vested interests. the, The first things we try and do is try to remove all the, sponsors that shouldn't be there do you know what i mean and we've always done that over mm. the years it's always been a battle to go well why are these why are these people got the name of the door here it's not it's not right it's not relevant yep. it shouldn't be taking yep. money from them and that's always been a challenge um, but now the challenge moves into a sort of like a more i guess a slightly more a targeted sort of approach looking at how do you license an event if the carbon emissions are at legal levels how is that possible to license that event why is that event getting a license and and you know we're very aware, and I'm very aware that that's an industry which is I've you know I've done very well out of, and I don't and and you know we've had a long career, and lots of bands are starting up, and I'm very aware that you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you or seem ungrateful, but I think all the other bands, the, the newer bands, would be very very happy to be inheriting an industry which behaved in a much more responsible way, Interesting. which had a much better impact. We would have been, mm-hmm. you know, if we'd been given the yeah. opportunity when we started out to look at things in a different way or to be given the opportunity to choose. Do you want to do it this way or that way? Mm. This is the better way, you know, and and obviously it's, a lot of it's about how you afford to, to tour and travel and, you know, it's always going to be a, something to do with the bottom line in, in, in a lot of areas. But there, there are different ways of, of 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 kind of making sort of really meaningful changes in our industry, and that's what I guess we're looking forward to doing.
3: Well, so I thought that I had the closing question, but now you've tempted me to ask a Previous to the final question, (laughs) Um, because I just wanted to ask you to go a little bit further into that um, from both of your perspectives. Um, We we do know that you have been working quite a bit on the carbon footprint of music making and certainly of touring. So I I guess the, the question is, you know, why the Tyndall Center? What are you planning to do? Do you think that there truly is an opportunity to um, basically revolutionize, and I wouldn't say even just music touring. I mean, it 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 would be all kinds of travel and all kinds of events, basically events, right? And, and we have come down incredibly, not because we wanted to, but because we were forced. We have just dramatically reduced uh, the carbon footprint of all events around the world, uh, either because they were canceled or because they were made virtual. And now there is so much... Um, there is so much technology that has been developed for this, but of course, all of that technology has its limits. So where, where do you see the creative space between the limits of the technology that we're all using now, you know, whether it's Teams or Zoom or BlueJeans or whatever, um, and the kind of events that we used to do. Which are fantastic for our souls, but irresponsible for the planet. Where is that creative space in between? Have you found it? Do you have it well, in mind?
4: Well, it's interesting. I mean, I'll pass this on to Mark on on the, on, on Tindall because um, I, you know I, he's got a lot of good things to say about the, you know what we're what we're hoping to do in terms of the the technology and, the, and in particular the virtualization of, of gigs and, and events. That's obviously evolving all, all the time. Um, but of course, there's something to be taken into account that all that data and all all those servers take up a lot of carbon too. And if you look at the sort of this whole period of lockdown, where mass amounts of adoption of of you know sort of like social gaming platforms, um, streaming television and music platforms, all that is sitting on servers and yeah. it's all it's all it's all using using fossil fuel energy, and that needs to change. That's something which we're talking to uh, renewable companies about in the UK, particularly mm, Ecotricity, mm. about how we can create a new server systems and the whole mm-hmm. new server data centers which run purely on renewables and actually mm-hmm. create legacy infrastructure for other other sort of um uh, music industry service systems mm.
1: That's Brilliant.
5: yeah and just just a note um on, on the tinder project itself i mean i think we realized quite quickly that we couldn't we couldn't start with where is the festival or who is the promoter we had to start with a much bigger concept so we we immediately went to the Tyndall Centre climate scientists to evaluate where these emissions are mostly coming from and then within the first kind of month it's very clear when you look at you know the first sort of bigger events it's estimated 80% of emissions are coming from transport so you can't go to a festival or a promoter you have to go to a city so we went to Liverpool being a sort of innately political city and said come on then if we if we are going to Tests out a kind of for want for want of a better term an, an exemplar event a kind of. Mm-hmm. Pilot by behaviour, mm-hmm. are you going to come with us? And so, the, the, really, the plan is is that simultaneous with the analysis that's conducted by the climate scientists, as the, as they reach new conclusions, for example, having a, a ticketing system which is tied to a train ticket, which is tied t- t- uh, tied to an electric bus, or 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 I guess for me, w- what what Tyndall specialises in is getting different sectors to talk to one another rather yeah. than trying to autonomously find a solution to something. Right. So by starting from the macro and saying, okay, okay, then city authorities, then we speak to the transport people and we, we have to do that you know because the music industry is particularly it, it's a kind of it's very monopolistic it's all kind of sewn up so you have to do it in the cracks mm-hmm. and then when you when and then when you get like then, that. The, and then when you get somewhere you're able to go haha here we go this is we're going to try this out and that's really and in fact if anything the the proposition for both the Tinder report and the the show in Liverpool next which will now be next year if anything the scope has got more radical because of covid-19 in wow. fact it, it, we're, we're now in a dialogue with Uh, transport companies power providers and the city authority to say well let's dare it further this is a moment of opportunity let's dare that much further let's have more cross-fertilizing conversations and see if we can pull off something which feels fun and exciting and engaging and again going back to not being hectoring or sermon something which is actually familiar to you and really really enjoyable but actually it's so compelling that this is this is the model now and there's no way back
4: and in, in that sense, what would be great about that is that if if that model if that model is recognised by that particular, say, Liverpool Liverpool local yep. council authority, then there'd be no reason why any other local council authority in right. the UK wouldn't say, "Well, that is the model. That's the way forward." Now you've established that be the standard. Exactly, exactly exactly right?
3: Well, I totally hmm. love that phrase that you used. Dare it further? May I quote you and steal it? But I will always <laughs> recognise the authorship. Um, but dare it further. It's such a fantastic phrase that encapsulates what we have to do now. Dare it. Further. That's why. That's I why I work
4: it. with him. I, I'm always stealing things like that from him. <laughs>
2: oh, <okay. laughs>
3: do you recognise so, so, his authorship though in public? Of course I do. <laughs> uh, yay! Sure.
4: Especially after a few drinks.
1: <laughs> very honourable people, both. Look, uh, what I've learned so much today is not just, uh, you know, uh, an appreciation for your extraordinary artistry, but the degree to which your social activism is incredibly well thought through and effective. A uh, last question: This is the Outrage and Optimism podcast. You've been very kind to give us so much of your time, but we must ask you: Are you more outraged or more optimistic?
4: <sighs> Can you oscillate between the two? But like permanently, we all do. <laughs> okay, but that's me then. I'm afraid I'm I'm the eternal oscillator.
5: <laughs> so I, I I I think I've uh, what's what's happened to me in the last six months is I've lost I've lost outrage. I've always been an optimist, but and I've always been very very outraged. But I think for me, I was thinking about this a minute ago. Outrage has been replaced by insult. So I either feel optimistic or I feel insulted. Oh, just because m- my sort of view is now that everyone you know, this is incontrovertible. The evidence is clear. We all know what to do. Um, so unless you are doing it, unless you are acting it, without sounding too severe, you're you're prevaricating, you're putting, you have to, we have to act, you know, we now need to see action. So if I see any identity, be it a kind of obvious one, like a fossil fuel company saying they're going to do a, a, a sky scenario or whatever it's called, um, which is hopeless, or or I see a media outlet, or <laughs> I just feel insulted now. And I I, I deal with it, the way I would always deal with insult, you know?
3: Wow. Well, you're challenging yeah, us don't. to at least consider changing the name of the podcast. Um, yeah, exactly, we, <laughs> exactly. We, I, I think we would all, um, the whole team would agree with you that, uh, yeah, that we're, we're going beyond outrage to to feeling individually and collectively insulted uh, and just absolutely furious. Yeah. Um, Guys, thank you so much. Thank you very, very much for taking the time today. Um, it was a very short notice for you to make the time on your very busy calendar, so thank you for doing that. Um, thank you for the release of the EP. I, I have to tell you... My daughter's estimation of their mother has gone through the roof. Thank you to you. So thanks very much for that. And that
1: means a lot to Christine. That means a lot. That's
3: the most. That's where I measure myself constantly. So thank you for that. Um, and thank you for everything that you've done. And especially yeah. because, you know, through this conversation, we realized that you are keeping your nose here really to the, to the stone, and we will continue to work through so many of the difficulties. But um, but you know, no stubbornness, and uh, will will keep us moving forward and uh, dare us further. I totally love it. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Oh, having you. Means.
4: No, thank you. Seriously. Cheers. Oh, Bye, Mark. Bye, Rob. Take care. Bye, guys.
3: Okay, you guys, so that was a fascinating conversation. I, I really enjoyed it because it took me out of my usual uh, thinking box into, um, for what me is outer space, which is precisely the, the space of art and culture where we, where, where we were with Sashi at the beginning and now even deeper into, um, into this conversation. Well, what do you guys leave that conversation with?
1: Well, you know, I kind of revealed myself to be a little bit of a fan, I guess, of their music. I mean, I love all music, but I love their music especially, and... Just one little thing. I've, I've developed this thing that I'm calling Paul's Poetry Corner, uh, where I use other people's poetry as my own. And I did that uh, on a recent episode uh, with a little poem about extinction. And here I want to talk about a song called Protection by Massive Attack. And I was just looking at the singer, actually, Tracy Thorne. She wrote the lyrics for it. And uh, she, she'd she got the music and um, she said she had to listen to it for days before she could get a handle on anything. And then she said, suddenly... She wrote the lyrics in 10 minutes and she said it's the favorite thing she's ever done. She's never changed a word. She said that it was like a hole into which my voice slotted like a key. So here is Paul's Poetry Corner. I'm not going to sing. I'm not trying to try and... Uh, but I'm going I'm to evoke that those lyrics in the song Protection for me speak a little bit uh, to the work, for example, of you, Christiana, um, dedicating your life to these things. Let's see if I can get through it without blubbing uh, in heaps of tears. So a few little extracts from the song Protection under the name Our Planet. I know you want to live yourself, but could you forgive yourself if you left her just the way you found her, I stand in front of you. I take the force of the blow, protection. And I've leaned on you for years. Now you can lean on me. And that's more than love. That's the way it should be.
5: Ooh. Nice.
3: Paul. Oh.
1: Well, the key of my poetry corner is I'm not actually writing the poems. I'm reading other people's. But okay, thank you.
2: I'm, I'm kind of getting to like your poetry corner. Suchy. <laughs> Yeah, I think those guys are dudes, you know. It's the same as I said about um, uh, Joni Mitchell. They're artists, you know, yeah. and and those songs are so profound and melancholy and beautiful and all-encompassing, and they take you, they're, they're not sloganeering. They're not taking you from one thing. They're taking you, uh, allowing a really broad resonance of emotion uh, and you know, time and space. You know, the the new pieces are obviously more, more focused with the speeches. But even then, within that, you know, you have all those lyrics and the other, the you know, the the music around it. I mean, they're true artists. They're geniuses. Yeah. They've been they're there forever. They they're, they're amazing. You know, they really are. And you know, like I say, you know, they, you know, what they stand for in there. They say what they stand for very clearly, you know. They they're public supporters of lots of very left wing causes, but in their music, mostly th- that is the artistic realm, I would say. And I think their their work is all the better for it. They're amazing, you know. Well, now, Sashi, I
3: I have a little um, I, I'm yeah. going to push the envelope a little bit here well, with you because yeah. before the interview, you know, do you remember that you were saying, well, um using art, whether it's music or painting or writing, um, as a political tool for activism has not become prime time. And um, when you said that, I remembered that when we interviewed Ellie Golding, she said that when she became political, and she has about several issues, including climate, she lost followers. And she said, you know, If she loses followers because she's standing for issues that she really believes in, then so be it. She's not going to sacrifice her standing on issues because of losing followers, which I thought was a very courageous position of hers. But if I put those two things together, you're saying that we're not on prime time yet. Ellie saying that she has lost followers because she became political, and now massive attack, very courageously, you know, with with a very sharp musical sword coming in to make their statement. Are we moving forward into prime time with the role of art in political activism?
2: <laughs> you asking me this? Yeah, I I'm don't. asking you, <laughs> Sashi. I don't know. I- I think in the end, artists write about what's inside them uh, and they they produce and work based on what they must talk about, what Mm, they must paint, what they must write, what they must sing. So if those political feelings they have are superficial... Then they can, can produce some work from it, but it's not visceral. I don't think it's so powerful. But when it's something that's at your very core, that you cannot live without speaking about it, then you must produce that work as an artist. Now, hmm. of course, some artists are better than others you know at expressing those things and some people will have the ability to be able to make it universal i was watching dolly parton yesterday and she was singing loads of songs about her you know her tennessee family and the kettle boiling and then um you know, and then he's—they're like, "Don't sing a song about kettle boiling. Nobody cares about your kettle boiling. Sing about love." And then, bam, she goes back and she writes, "I will always love you," and that became the song, really. And it's exactly the same song about her mother. The kettle boiling was about her mother, and "I will always love you" was was uh, her and Porter But it's like it, that was—it's—it's it's a different way to express the same thing, you know. Um, It—it's—it it, in the end. You're going to write and sing about the things that you cannot be silent about.
1: That there's so beautifully put, and I think there's just one other dimension to this that 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 I I, I want to kind of share. That you know, that where I live in Brighton, we'd have thousands of starlings uh, flying over the uh, the pier, and I was very interested in their movement. I would love to listen to a string quartet and watch them. And a friend of mine said, "Your eye will find the dance in the starlings. Mm. Your eye will find it." And I think that's what's happening here. You know, Sachi, you talked about the Gulf Stream shutting off. I mean, actually, that's what got me into climate change. Somebody Mm. said the Gulf Stream's going to shut down. Mm. And I'm like, I could see my own childhood taken away from me. Yeah. And that's when these words started to mean something. I don't know if it's what Tracy Thorne was thinking when she wrote it, but I'm like, could I forgive myself if I left her just the way I found her? You know, um, I've leaned on her for years. Now she can lean on me. You know, it's more than love. It's the way it should be. It's something about duty in the heart and the soul and the music Mm. just touches it and the eye finds it.
2: Yeah, it's limerence. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's when crazy kids get into their basement and cook something up. That's when the great stuff really happens. <laughs> that's so uh, true. <laughs> yeah, that's so uh, true. You know, that's when it gets weird. When, when, it, when you've got a kid dressed head to toe in recycled plastic, singing shit about climate change, but not mentioning it at all. That's when you know, whoa, this has just happened. I think the one thing I would say about kids, though, and climate change is that I think we come from a generation where we, um, but you know, a lot of the early, well, you know, I wouldn't say early climate people were came from a very nature-loving childhood, and I think now a lot of children come from a, a very nature-anxious childhood. So I hope that there's enough um rich soil for them. You know, uh, anger and fear and frustration are great starting points for creativity, Absolutely. but there must be a wellspring of of like love and like, oh, I just want to tell you this, this. This, the way you know this this thing moves me, um, and I hope that um, the, the younger people who are into climate activism have take time to let nature take care of them, to fall in love mm. with nature themselves. Because I think that's another mm. really important ingredient. Anger is great reason to write a song, but love is even more powerful to write a song. yeah
1: Wise wow. words, Sachi. Thank you,
2: Sachi.
3: How? Um... How beautiful to hear you speak that anger is powerful and love is even more powerful. And the two actually mm-hmm. interact so incredibly with each other, don't they? Um, and I, I actually have the sense that there is a lot of, of that realization happening now with COVID that we are all, not all, but so many of us are realizing, oh, my God, what we really need in our lives is direct Contact with nature. We have to go out there. We have to. We have to hug a tree, for heaven's sakes, um, and especially those who are cooped up in four cement walls are just absolutely so thirsty to go out there. So, so maybe you know, of the many different transformations that will come out of this very weird time in human history, is a, a deeper closeness with nature. But, but because you talked about both anger and love, I cannot. But um, avoid the question that we usually like to close our episode mm. with here, Sashi, which is we, the reason why our podcast is called Outrage and Optimism is because we believe that we have to be outraged about everything that we haven't done yet and at the same time optimistic about what we are doing and how much more we can do. So there is a, you know, there, there, there's a... Either a short or a long distance between those two, and I would just love you to, to place yourself. If, if those were, you know, the two ends of a stick or the two ends of a of, of a little rope, um,
2: where would you place yourself? <laughs> mm. I always say I'm fifty-one op- percent uh, optimistic. I'm one. I'm the one percent. Uh, that's all I can manage is the one percent. Uh, but I refuse to ever become forty-nine percent optimistic. I will always be one percent. I'm like the shareholder, the person who has to control <laughs> <laughs> the optimism <laughs> shares. I will not lose my one percent because if you lose it, if you lose the optimism, what's the point? You might as well give in. You gotta yeah. keep on fighting. You've gotta keep. You've. Lynn, the words of Harvey Milk, you've got to give them hope. And in terms of uh, outrage, um, you know, I I, I think it's a spectrum. And I always have, uh, for me, my personal heroes are the the Arctic 30, those people who... uh, who you know, went up to the Arctic and they got arrested and stuff. And I have a picture up on the wall all the time for me. It's, it's to remind me to be braver and bolder. And you know what really touches me about those people is a whole bunch of them had children, really young children the same age as mm. mine. And they still went up and they still got thrown into the Russian gulag for that. So they're my outrage, uh, ometer, uh, for like how to be angry and act. But in the end, um, you know, and I find myself very falling very far short of them. But I like to have them there as a kind of vacuum to move me towards more anger. But in the end, it's got to be about love and hope. That that those are the things that really, really move me. Wow.
3: Well, the fifty one percent woman, I totally love it, <laughs> Sashi. Thank you so much That's for jumping in here, um, and uh, and and really being so generous with uh, with your insight and and your humor. Um, and your knowledge of, of the arts world. Thank you so, so much. Um, Paul, such a do you want to take us out? Well, how how do we finish the episode?
1: Well, in a rather special way, uh, alongside me thanking you also very much, Actually, thank you mm. for your time. So you. we have Massive Attack, and actually an extract from their extraordinary new um, three-part EP, Utopia. This is Massive Attack with lead vocals – from Christiana Figueres.
2: Yay.
3: Who cannot sing for the life of her. She can talk, though. She can talk. She can talk.
1: (laughs) It is a very beautiful and very magical thing. Please look in the show notes for the video. But we hope you enjoy this extract now. It's a wonderful piece of music. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.
2: Bye-bye.
3: COVID-19 crisis crashed into our world, governments were already facing the convergence of the climate crisis, the inequality crisis, and the oil price crisis. Now, the fourth, the global health crisis has not only converged on us as well, but has accelerated the impacts of the previous crisis, deepening Disorder and accentuating social suffering. In emerging from this, everyone can play their part, individually and collectively. The future we choose should be one of resilience, starting with aligning the food system to the four principles set out by the FAO availability. Utilization, and Stability.
0: So there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. The music you just heard is a teaser of the first track off of the latest EP titled Utopia by Massive Attack. Uh, The song was done with New York City rock band Algiers, and it was co-written and produced by Robert 3D Del Naya and Mark Don, featuring lead vocalist Christiana Figueres. There is a stunning music video with the full song you can check out with visuals done by AI visuals pioneer Mario Klingemann. I could try to describe it to you, but you really just need to experience it for yourself. Um, I put a link in the show notes for you to click. So go check that out. And when you're done, there's two more videos and songs for the Utopia EP you can indulge in. So again, link in the show notes. Go check it out. Okay. Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. An executive produced by Marina Manzilicherman. Thank you to our team this week, Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, and Sharon Johnson. Special thanks this week to Mark Picken for making our interview with Massive Attack happen. Thank you to Robert 3D Del Naya of Massive Attack and Mark Don well for being our interview guests. And of course, a huge thank you to our special guest co-host, Sachi Lloyd. Sachi has some Cli-Fi books that you need to purchase and add to your summer reading list. Titles like The Carbon Diaries and her latest work, 72 to Save a Zoo. On a personal note, she is one of the wittiest and most funny people I have ever met. I cut out a lot of it in the episodes you can't hear, but I was laughing constantly in the background of our recording session over Zoom. Link is in the show notes to her books. Get reading. And yes, we love to see your digital self on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Global Optimism, where you can read, share, check out what we're doing, and communicate with us. And if you love the podcast, please hit subscribe and leave a rating. Thank you. Okay, next week, the anxiety of not having Tom around continues. Another amazing guest and surprise co-host coming your way. We'll see you then.